Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. We saw a fourth consecutive 75 basis point rate hike from the U.S. Federal Reserve in November. With Fed Chair Powell indicating that there is more room to run, is now the time for investors to adjust their portfolio model and consider a larger position in bonds. Our guest today is Andre Bruno, Director ETF Capital Markets at Fidelity Canada. With host Pamela Ritchie, Andre unpacks the latest updates from the November FOMC meeting and what it may mean for the capital markets. A couple of key highlights from today's discussion include Andre noting the outlook for inflation does look a bit better for 2023 compared to what we saw in 2022. Also, that in the U.S., pension plans are starting to look at fixed income closer, specifically mid- to longer-dated investment-grade bonds, replacing equity investments. Stay tuned for this and more. Today's podcast was recorded on November 3rd, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. You're sort of our first discussion on this. It it was um, not unexpected, but certainly a market reaction to the comments. I mean, what's your take on that kind of reaction? Yeah, the the general consensus is that it was certainly a little more hawkish than I think people were expecting. So I think I think the main kind of note that got people thinking and got markets moving uh, was the was the implication that the terminal rate would have to move a little bit higher than what currently the market was expecting, or or, or what Chairman Powell even thought, uh, and and the Fed members thought that the terminal rate was going to be. So you know, as a response to that, we have seen markets pricing in another you know twenty twenty five basis points of tightening uh, in terms of the terminal rate, uh, you know, yields along the U.S. yield curve moved, you know, anywhere between 15 and 20 basis points as well. And as we know, equity markets reacted, uh, you know, n- not in a positive manner to to the news as well, obviously closing down on the day yesterday. Does it surprise you that so much trade was put on to that day? I mean, you know, tradable events are tradable events, but in such a risky market that that. I mean, it does actually appear to be very data dependent unless you see it differently to put so many trades around that type of event in this kind of risk. I mean, is that surprising to you at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's more emblematic of kind of how we've seen things traded this year. Markets have been very fast and reacted very violently to news this year. And we're also getting to the scenario, too, where I think a lot of people are, are thinking, OK, is this the end? Is this are we getting to the terminal rate or the, is the Fed going to stop raising rates? So, you know, it's it's potential out there that there's some, you know, kind of fast money clients that are looking at, at markets and saying, all right, we're going to make a bet that this is where the terminal rate's going to be. So it's 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 a possibility, again, that, that there are folks out there looking to catch that falling knife and trying to time the Fed perfectly as well. But again, I think I think ultimately it's, it's more of a function just of how volatile the year has been and how fast markets have been trading this year. Well, we've certainly seen incredible vol in, in the bond market and the fixed income space throughout the beginning months of the year. It was sort of astonishing. Um, it's It's been becoming quite a different story for fixed income. T- tell us sort of broadly how you look at the place, the yeah, role but, of bonds. Yeah, so it's obviously been, you know, a painful year. I think I think it's been probably the most painful year in the bond markets in, in I think, 
since you know kind of we've been tracking indices um you know a lot of indices are down you know somewhere around 20 percent which you know a lot of investors are not used to seeing 20 percent down on their bond uh, uh on their bond line item line item in their portfolio so it's been very shocking for folks um you know last year you know the us ag and the global ag ended negative and it looks like we're gonna end uh this year negative you know crazy black swan event notwithstanding. So it'll be the first time in history where the Canada Ag, US Ag and Global Ags have had two consecutive years of negative returns. But with that presents quite a bit of opportunity. So if you take a look at kind of where things were last year from a yield perspective to this year, and you look across you know, various indices, whether those are you know, global or local uh, aggregate indices and even subsectors within the fixed income markets, you're looking at yield pickups of anywhere between you know, 200 and to 400 basis points if you go out to the high yield space. So again, opportunity set is, is very large in fixed income right now. Uh, you know, last year was was one of those scenarios where it's, you know, it was a coupon clipping environment. You're going to, you know, get your two and a half percent yield and hopefully nothing goes wrong and you're okay. Obviously, you know, duration moved against us last year and it's continued to move against us this year. But this year, if you think about it and you take a look at certain, you know, bond portfolios, you know, you can earn anywhere between seven and eight percent yield. So at least now there's tons of cushion in there, even in the event, you know, we do get another 50 basis points or 100 basis points of unexpected tightening from the Fed and then yield curve moves uh, um, um, in concert with that. You know, you still have sufficient enough yield that on a year over year basis, you're, you're still looking at a positive return outlook for your fixed income. What do you think sort of, you know, a couple, couple quarters out? I mean, what does the inflation picture look like from where you're standing? We, we know all these measures take time to kick in. So, so what's that? A couple of quarters? Yeah, I, I think we're going to continue to grind lower on inflation. Again, we, we've kind of turned from peak inflation. We're still not heading kind of lower in the speed at which I think Fed members and I think you know market participants would like. But you are seeing some positive signs in there. Goods inflation is starting to trend lower. Uh, services inflation is being a little bit stickier, but that's kind of a it's kind of a circular thing, right? You know, inflation goes higher, the labor market's super tight, employees are asking for wages, higher wages usually leads to higher prices in the services. But I think, um, you know, we got a decent data point on unit labor costs this morning, which was a little bit lower than the market was expecting out of the United States. So some positive signs there. If you take a look at kind of rent prices in the United States, those have peaked and have turned a corner. So we are getting some signs that things are slowing. Um, it would be nice if we can start to trend towards, you know, 5%, 4%, 3% sometime by mid, you know, kind of 2023. Um, I think that'll give the breathing room to Chairman Powell to, to maybe kind of slow things down a little bit. Um, ideally, and I think what most people hope is that, you know, we don't get more rates tacked on to the terminal rate here. I think there probably is some room for, you know, maybe even another 25 to 50 basis points potentially getting added to the terminal rate. Uh, but within the context of fixed income, that's not the end of the world. As I mentioned, a lot of yield. Um, from, from an equity market perspective, certainly not going to enjoy adding uh, uh, further rate hikes onto the terminal rate. Uh, but again, I think the outlook for inflation does look a little bit better in 2023. I mean, when we saw Tiff Macklin make his remarks after only going 50, um, what do you think he was sort of pointing to? I mean, we all know the story in Canadian housing. We, we know ultimately what it is doing to the housing market and sort of what that might look like. Was that a pivot? Was that an, what was that? Yeah, I think the market certainly took that as more of a more of a dovish tone. Um, I think what uh, Governor Macklem is looking at, he's forecasting out the economy and he's seeing some slowdown in the Canadian economy. So I think what 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 he's trying to do right now and what the folks at the Bank of Canada are trying to do right now is kind of control for a soft landing. So I don't think they want to put so many rate hikes into the economy such that we have that hard landing. So what's a little bit different uh 
in Canada relative to the United States is, is the Canadian consumer is a lot more levered relative to our US counterparts. So from a consumer debt to, to income perspective, I think we're sitting somewhere around 170%. So again, that's that's not including mortgage debt. So you overlay mortgage debt and that, that number even grows even more. So obviously the Canadian consumer is starting to feel the pinch of these, uh, these, these, these rate hikes and they're gonna continue to feel them. So I think given those two things, just looking at how in debt indebted the Canadian consumer is and, and doing some economic forecasts, I think he's trying to trying to trying to broker that soft landing and trying to avoid that deep recession. There's a lot of discussion that the bond market is is getting towards a lot more clarity. I mean, there's still fogginess hanging around, but we get back to looking at demographics. We get back to looking at things that you typically would use when you're wading into the bond market in some way um, to figure out valuations. Is, is that happening in your mind? For sure. I mean, you're, you're seeing it. Um, if you take a look at the U.S. side, there's obviously uh, the pension plans are starting to look at fixed income a lot, a lot closer. A lot of them are, are in overfunded status. So they're saying, you know, we're going to take some risk out of equities and, and get into the fixed income market, specifically, you know, midterm to longer dated uh, investment grade bonds. Uh, if you think about Canada as well, and you know, longer term tread, we do have an aging, aging demographic. The United States is going to double the amount of 60 year olds they have in the next 10 years. Um, so again, there's certainly going to be demand for fixed income product moving forward. Uh, obviously, when we just talk about current market and we look at current yields, um, based on where valuations are, people are taking note. Credit is is kind of in between. If you if you take a look at investment grade bond, high yield bonds, like they're not super rich, not super poor. They're kind of right in the sweet spot there. But if you think about it right now, you know, high yield bonds are somewhere in the nine to ten percent range. So that gives you a bit of cushion from a default perspective. I think somewhere between the one and three percent default range, you, you have that cushion in yields already. And we have been seeing flows, you know into the high yield space. And more broadly speaking, we have been seeing a lot more flows into the fixed income space over the last month. Great. Okay, well, let's let's talk more about that. What what else have you seen on the flows from we can go into the different factors? But so within fixed income, there is there's gaining interest. Absolutely. So I, I think it's it's been slow. It's been a slow burn because, you know, it, it, yields have been kind of a I'd say optimistic. They've been looking good for the last few months, but you know, obviously, you know, there's a lot of recency bias. Everyone's been getting very hurt with uh, with fixed income this year, so people have been slow to kind of shift in. But I think yields are just getting to a certain level where everyone's getting a little bit more comfortable, uh, so they're jumping in. When you when you take a look at other asset classes and we take a look at equities, uh, what we've been seeing, you know, kind of a lot of defensive factors have been in style this year. Obviously, you know, dividends. Uh, we've been seeing flows into dividends. Uh, your high quality names and your uh, low vol names. Uh, mind you, from a valuation perspective, they're getting a little bit expensive because you know the trade is kind of getting crowded. Everyone's everyone is flowing into that space. Uh, but again, that, that that has been working this year uh, from a relative uh, relative return perspective. Um, and again, we, we continue to see demand in the defensive names. So, so you mentioned you know just allocations generally speaking. Um, one of the questions we do get quite a lot is is what about GICs in this environment? I mean, how how do you answer that question? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and the yields on GICs are, are, are quite nice right now. Um, I believe they're probably somewhere around 5% on a five-year basis, maybe a little bit higher with the last uh, Bank of Canada hike. A couple things you have to know about GICs. Number one, liquidity is obviously a concern. So, you know, always think about your liquidity. Often you have to lock in. Your, there, there are cashable GICs. You do you do take a yield, yield haircut on the cashable GICs. Uh, but what I would say that, again, the opportunity set in fixed income is quite high. So I, I favor the fixed income market right now. You can still get yield pickup in fixed income relative to GICs. Another thing you have to consider is historical returns. So, you know, if you go back and you take a look at a five-year GIC and you put it up against the, the Canada Ag, for example, you know, you buy a five-year GIC and then what did the Canada Ag return over the next five years? And if you do that going all the way back to 1982 to today, 
Um, so there's been 430 periods. GICs have only beat the Canada Ag. Five-year GICs have only been to beat the Canada Ag twice. So that's all. For how many periods? 430. So you're looking at a monthly, monthly basis. You know, what was the GIC rate? You know, how did the Canada Ag return over the ensuing five years? There's only been two periods where GICs, five-year GICs have outperformed. So something to think about. It's also akin to, right now, buying GICs right now is also akin to essentially shorting stocks at the bottom of the market. So you're, you're shorting rates at the bottom of the market. I mean, I'm not going to say we're right at the bottom of the market because I think, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, arguably we're closer to the top of yields than we are to the bottom. I think most people can agree on that. Uh, so, so these are a lot of things to consider when, when uh, looking at GICs. Not to say you shouldn't buy any GICs, of course, but just be cognizant of the liquidity, be cognizant of your asset allocation, and just be cognizant of what the outlook is for fixed income moving forward. Within fixed income, so do corporate bonds um, react the same as sovereign bonds? Well, it's an interesting world in the sovereign bond markets right now. Do, do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah, sure. So, so thing to consider. So we're talking about sovereign bonds. We'll talk about you know Canadian government treasuries and and, and U.S. government bonds as well. So uh, the thing to understand about those is that they're pure play. They're they're rates products. So they that's that's the risk you're you're facing there. You're facing rates. You're obviously facing sovereign bankruptcy risk, but you know we often say the treasuries are, are risk-free um, and default-free. Um, but again, when you talk about corporate bonds, you also have to consider credit. So again, credit-risky bonds demand a credit spread over treasuries. When I say credit-risky bond, think corporate bonds, investment-grade, high-yield bonds. So that's the additional yield that the market requires above the treasury rate. So they do trade a little bit differently. So they are duration products as well. Corporate bonds are duration products as well, but there's also credit spread in there, which is a reflection of obviously the, the, the issuer's ability to repay, repay back their debt. Really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the world of equities right now. And you can tell us about some of the flows, but you know, recent earnings we've seen come in and not, not even so much the earnings I wanted to ask you about, but really the guidance and what, what's that that has done to some of the enormous tech names that have huge weights and various indices. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what do you make of that? It's actually a changing landscape there. Yeah, it's actually interesting. So obviously, forward guidance hasn't been terribly good. We've seen you know uh, earnings guidance come lower and lower and lower, and I think it's probably good to expect a little bit more of that moving forward, which is probably not what folks want to hear with regards to equities. Uh, but again, and when you talk about the tech names as well, just how violently they've traded lowers, they're starting to get caught up in kind of value screens now, which I don't think a lot of these names have ever been caught up in a value screen before. So it's kind of interesting and it does provide some opportunities moving forward. Um, you know, I'm not going to make a call whether... Yeah, so value screens. So, so, you know, value stocks are typically those stocks that are again underpriced relative to market. So that's kind of the high level explanation of what a value stock is. So historically speaking, these growth names have been trading at you know astronomical uh, PDE levels. Right now, they're starting to dip down towards like value levels. So as I mentioned earlier, they're getting caught up in some value screens, which is kind of interesting um, when when you think of certain some of these names that have just been pure play growth stocks uh, for you know kind of the last 10, 15 years or so. Wow. So the valuation, I mean, they look cheap, basically. They're, they're looking cheap at this point. Um, anything else across sort of, let's go across kind of the factor discussion. Obviously, vol has been an extraordinary discussion for this year. Um, what do you see in terms of flows with, with some of the different factors, other ways to sort of look at the market? Yeah, it's been, you know, from a factor perspective, it's been kind of a boring year just because everyone's been kind of doing the same thing. They've been sitting to the higher quality, the low vols, uh, the dividend factor. A lot of people have been flowing into dividends. I mean, uh, dividends have been doing extraordinarily well this year, which 
you know, kind of paradoxically, you think, you know, dividend names, you think, okay, it's a, it's a cash flow evaluation, you know, rates have been going up, but, you know, dividends have been doing quite well this year and we're continuing to see that. And again, I think it just comes back to just how much uncertainty is out there still in the market, whether it's with the Fed, whether it's with earnings, whether it's with inflation. So I think a lot of folks are, are still playing defense and, 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 and we've continued to see that all year. Yeah, fascinating. Um, when you see ultimately um, elections next week, is there is there anything to know? Sort of, I mean, I'm kind of looking to things on the energy front. Uh, what's what's your take on the overall energy story? I would say broadly across the world, but maybe particularly in the U.S. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, the question is, is you know, I think I think kind of the general consensus forecast here is that the GOP is probably going to take one of the houses. Um, so the question is, is, is that going to be sufficient to effectuate any policy with regards to specifically with regards to energy moving forward? At the end of the day, you still have to get the president to sign on the dotted line. They're certainly not going to have super majorities in either house or in both houses to, to kind of override that veto. So, um, you know, on the plus side, you know, obviously, you know, President Biden, it'll be tougher for him to get any of his energy policy out if there's a house consistently blocking his agenda. So, you know, I think the odds are that energy policy is probably going to stay relatively fixed over the next two years. Um, when, you, when you do take a look at energy prices, obviously that has been kind of the biggest, biggest mover in commodities this year, um, kind of all across the energy complex up anywhere between 50 to, you know, I think NAC gas is up somewhere north of 90% year to date. Um, so that's obviously been tough. Crack spreads are, are pretty wide right now. Crack spreads is simply the difference between, you know, crude oil and the, uh, and the derivatives of crude oil. So uh, obviously gasoline prices. So that's why we're still feeling it at the pump as well. Um, you know, ideally, OPEC obviously is another bogey. Obviously, they've cut production, so that's not helping the energy story either. Uh, if you take a look, a uh, bit of more of an international lens for energy policy. Uh, but again, so I, I, I don't, I don't foresee. I mean, I'm not a political expert, but I don't foresee uh, tons changing with regards to energy policy, especially if they have, you know, kind of split, split, uh, split House and Senate, or even GOP House and Senate with a, with a, with a Democratic uh, president. Hunter, you pick up the phone, talk to a lot of trading desks in a day. Um... Can you give us a little insight into kind of what you're hearing, what what you're watching in terms of reactions of traders right now? Yeah, so <laughs> a lot of stress traders, um, just because markets have been moving so fast and so violent, so, so it's it's fairly easy to get caught with your pants down, uh, unfortunately. What we've been noticing, obviously, there's been a, a lot more uh, funding pressures, obviously, for for the banks and the trading desks. Uh, obviously, with interest rates having been you know close to zero for so long, it was you know, very easy, very cheap to borrow stocks, to cover shorts and all that. So obviously funding costs are going up. So trading dynamics are trading a little bit because again, those funding costs are front and center. So inventory management has a, been a big, uh, kind of a big theme over the last couple of months uh, with the market makers. And we've been having a lot of discussions there just in terms of, you know, things that we can do on the issuer side to make it easier for them to trade, easier for them to accommodate their inventory management. So we've, we have been having a tons of conversations with regards to that. Okay, fascinating. To what extent does yesterday's FOMC announcement um, impact non-U.S. markets? Yeah, fascinating question. I mean, the dollar, but you know what else? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the dollar is probably the big thing. I mean, that is the main thing. It's probably the most obvious thing, obviously. But then, you know, when you think about the dollar as well, then that trickles into EM debt markets as well. Often EM debt markets issue their debt in U.S. dollars to get access to the U.S. capital markets. So if their local currency is depreciating, it makes it harder for them to service their debt. That's why you've seen EM, being, EM debt being kind of 
I think it's the number one or number two worst performing area in the fixed income market. I think it trades off with the global ag, depending on which day you look at it. Uh, so I think you'll you'll continue to see that as the Fed continues to to, to raise rates. From a from an equity perspective, um, you know, if you take a look at kind of EFI, like you know, valuations there are looking somewhat attractive. But the question is, is it you know, is it trading that low for a reason? Um, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty in Europe. Obviously, UK has been kind of all over the place politically. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna we're going to cut rate, cut taxes. Now we're going to hike taxes. So they're kind of all over the place. Uh, Europe, obviously, there was some, you know, there were some concerns around Credit Suisse. I think that's, uh, you know, it may have been a little bit overblown. I'm not sure. I think from a from a capital ratio, they seemed okay, but I don't know if there's. Uh, but generally speaking, the the European banks are a little less robust than the North American banks. Um, so I think Europe has a lot to figure out. Um, the issue with Europe too is they were at negative interest rates, and now all of a sudden they're they're hiking interest rates. So. That has tons of knock-on effects for you know you know balance sheets for a lot of the banks. I mean, it's nice that they have a little bit of wiggle room with regards to kind of rates, but it also you got to think about all the collateral. If they're holding any sovereign bonds, and all of a sudden you go from a negative interest rate to a positive interest rate, that has massive implications for the mark-to-market, of course. So, um, so yeah, I think Europe has a lot of things to sort out. Um, you know, I'm not going to make a, a directional call on Europe, but uh, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Okay. There is a lot going on. There's a, there's an awful lot that's going on there. You mentioned dividends before, sort of in a, in a context of another conversation. Are, are slowing earnings um, overall a concern for future dividend levels? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's certainly a legitimate concern to think about. To, uh, to what extent is it going to affect dividends moving forward is probably the million dollar question. But obviously, when you go into an environment where earnings are going down, dividends are always kind of potentially at risk. Um, when you think about Canada, obviously, we've got our banks, which I don't think historically any of them have cut their dividend, um, I believe, going back to since inception. Um, maybe I think Laurentian Bank may have cut it once or, or one, of, uh, one of the smaller banks may have cut it once. But uh, in terms of the big six, uh, I don't believe they've ever cut. But yeah, broadly speaking, though, it, it certainly is a concern. The positive thing with, with dividends moving forward is if we do finally hit that terminal rate, of, uh, of of interest rate hikes, that's obviously positive for dividend paying stocks just from a just from a cash flow valuation perspective. Right. Yeah. For sure. Sort of uh, closer to the end of this of this overall story. When you see, I mean, we have got the jobs number coming out tomorrow for um, for last month. What do you do with bad news essentially in terms of watching these markets? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it really depends on how you're positioned in your portfolio. I mean, if you're already if you're already defensive, then I mean, there, there might not be. Uh, a ton more you can do from that perspective. Obviously, you can take a look at your asset allocation. As I mentioned, bonds are looking a lot more attractive right now. So, you know, if uh, you know if you if you are getting concerned and want to get even more defensive, maybe looking at you know reallocating some of your your riskier areas, your portfolio into fixed income, into some of the safer areas of fixed income, especially um, thinking about investment grades or treasuries, for example. Oh, treasuries, for example. Okay, interesting. Um- what what if nothing happens in the bond market? I mean, that's another sort of question. I think I think we all, a lot of traders do have sort of some PTSD of just how low rates were for so 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 long. I think I think if nothing happens in the bond market over the next two years, I think you're going to be happy. I mean, again, as I mentioned, if you're looking at certain bond funds, you're getting anywhere between seven and eight percent on a yield to worst basis. So I think, you know, given the last two years and even the last, you know, 10 years of low interest rate environments, I think you're going to be thrilled with clipping seven and a half percent. So I think it's actually relatively positive for bonds if literally nothing happens. I mean, I'm sure the bond, the bond portfolio managers and bond traders would be pretty happy if they got a breather for a little bit. Right. So the 60-40 is, is it, is, would you even adjust the 60-40 at this point? I mean, the theoretical chairness of the chair 60-40 is what I'm saying. 
Well, there's certainly been a lot of talk about the 6040 and whether it's still relevant, you know, given given the low interest rate mine over the last 10 years. Um, I think it certainly makes a lot more sense now than it did a year ago or maybe a few years ago. Um, I, not to say what I will say, I'll say I'll put a little caveat in there. I still think there is, you know, so, some room for some some alternative investments, whether you're looking in the in the debt space or what, whether you're looking in the equity space. There's certainly some room in there. What the exact you know, allocation is, I'll, I'll leave that up to uh, people smarter than me, but I still think there is some room for some alternative investments in there as well. Okay, sort of some bespoke ways of doing things as well. Take us back to the discussion on pension funds that you said you just, you noticed a shift ultimately in, in what they're looking at. Um, you mentioned they're in a lot of ways funded. Um, just sort of take us back to some of those behemoths within the market and what they're doing. Yeah, so, so to Give a little bit more color on that statement. So we take a look at the top, I believe, 100 d- defined benefit uh, pension funds in the United States. So it's top largest, I'm talking about assets under management here. So they're at about, on average, they're at about 106% funded. So what does that mean? It's just simple assets over liabilities. And, and that's what pension funds do. They match assets, they match liabilities, and make sure that they're funded for, you know, when folks retire, of course. So, so what the rationale there is going to say, okay, we're overfunded. We're going to de-risk. We don't need to take as much risk in the equity market. Yields are looking quite attractive, whether you're looking at treasury, whether you're looking at investment grades. And they're looking at term as well. Because, you know, again, they have long-term, typically they have long, long-term liabilities, right? It takes, you know, 30, 35 years for an employee to, to retire. So they've got long-term liabilities. So they're trying to match that up as great, greatly as possible right now. So, so, you know, there's a bit of a forecast. And again, take, take these forecasts with a grain of salt because things always change. But they're looking at a shift of about $500 billion away from equities and into fixed income, specifically investment grade U.S., kind of in that mid to longer term uh, investment grade bond tenor space over the next five or so years. So again, pension funds are like oil tankers. They move pretty slow. So it takes them time to, 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 to kind of change course. When you look at um, ultimately some of the discussions around um you know, policy going forward, we mentioned demographics and the importance of maybe getting back to basics and how you're looking at valuations for bonds and how you look at them and, and their place. We spoke to to the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper earlier this week on this show and uh, talked mostly about an aging population, talked around that a little bit, a few different points, but it kind of again brings it back to do you think we go back to looking at things like policy moves how how do you how do you see the world going forward when we have aging populations like wh- what does it mean to have an economy that has that and, and what do they need to do about it ultimately yeah so i think you take a look at canada our kind of demographic pyramid looks a little bit more like a house and less like a pyramid so that's not ideal ideally you want that pyramid structure you know more folks coming up uh, i think in canada i mean you, you take a look at birth rates where we're, we're, we're relatively low i mean that's similar in all developed markets uh kind of in the world there so i i think this this kind of simple answer is we're gonna have to backfill things with immigration and i don't i don't see that we have much of another choice um, we do got to get more folks into the economy. Um, in the United States, they're a little bit better. They they do have a bit of a bit of a house there. Um, again, I think I think immigration is going to play a role there as well, um, because I think I think most people's worst case scenario is you, you kind of take a look at Japan and see what's happened to them over the last 20, 30 years. And they have a bit of, you know, they have a demographic bomb over there as well. So I think a lot of folks want to kind of avoid that scenario. And I think the main way that we're going to achieve that is through increase increases in immigration. So if you want investors to take away kind of one message right now is to take a look at the bond markets. Is that, would that be it or what, what would you add? 
Oh, absolutely. I think I think I I, I want to say I think bonds are back. I think they're they're starting to be, come back in favor. I think we're finally getting yields that we've been kind of thirsty for over the last you know ten to fifteen years. Uh, and I think it's a great time to take a look at bonds and look at adding them into your portfolio. Okay, it's great to see you, Andre Bruno. Thank you for joining us on Fidelity Connects today. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.